put the hard stuff on the shelf and come back to it later. It, it might not be that it's clear today how to do it, or if you're trying to get people to buy into the concept generally, don't go with the hardest concept that's gonna bring in other political challenge. Makes sense. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Of course, we are sponsored proudly by the Government Finance Officers Association and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm normally joined by my wonderful co-host, Liz Farmer. But for this particular episode, and actually for the next couple episodes that we'll be bringing to you, we're doing something a little bit different we were fortunate to have the opportunity to record some episodes live at the recent conference of the Government Finance Officers Association in Portland. Every year, GFOA has its big national conference, and it's uh, quite an event in the world of state and local public money. We were there. We were able to talk to lots of interesting folks and actually record a couple podcast episodes live right in the exhibit hall. And so what you're going to hear for the next couple episodes are what we were able to put together while we were there. Uh, the first episode and the one that you'll hear here today is an interview that Liz and I were able to do with Ben McAdams. Ben McAdams, former congressman from Utah's 4th Congressional District and the mayor, former mayor of uh, Salt Lake County. These days he's been working on sort of broad project, what we might call uh, public-private partnerships, uh, what he and and his team call putting assets to work and uh, what is sometimes called asset recycling, all under the, the, the broad purview of finding new ways to take assets that are owned by public sector entities, particularly capital assets like buildings and land, and put them to better use, finding underused, underutilized assets and finding ways to treat them as uh, value generators for state and local governments. And so uh, Ben's been working on these issues for some time now. He has a, a project that he's been doing with GFOA, and a lot of his time now is spent working on exactly this issue. We were able to catch up with him in the exhibit hall at GFOA. This interview sounds a little bit different because it's a captured live and you know, lots of background noise. The recording's a little bit raw, but hopefully you'll get a sense of the energy and the vibe that we were able to pick up at GFOA. So we have this episode and a couple others that you'll be hearing here on the Public Money Pod over the next couple of weeks. So thanks for listening. And uh, with that, let me give you our interview with Ben McAdams. Okay, well, Liz, we have a special edition of the Public Money Pod here today. We are coming to you live from GFOA, the National Conference in Portland. Background noise you hear is the Exhibit Hall. Pleased to be here, and thanks as always to GFOA and Build America Mutual for sponsoring the Public Money Pod. We have with us a, a very, very special guest, a former member of Congress, although we don't hold that against him, former <laughs> mayor of uh, Salt Lake County, Ben McAdams. Ben's here to tell us about some of the work that he's been doing on uh, urban wealth funds, asset recycling, uh, all sorts of things in the uh, in the capital asset space, really interesting stuff. Thanks, Ben, for being here with us, taking the time away from the conference. We really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you, Justin. Thank you, Liz. Great to be with you both. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. We are, are, are doing this right after we had your, you had your panel discussion on putting assets to work. 
And I was struck by one of your stories about when you were mayor in Salt Lake County about how you needed to, how you wanted to build a convention center hotel. So I was hoping, could you kind of retell that story for our yeah, listeners? Yeah. So um, we, the county owns and operates the, we're sitting here in the convention center in Portland right now, right? So the county, Salt Lake County owns the Salt Lake Convention Center. It's a key economic revenue generator for us, you know, brings in people who shop at our stores, eat at our restaurants, pay taxes, and then don't put their kids in our schools or drive on our roads. So it's the best type of tax revenue because there's no <laughs> obligation on the other end. But we did analysis and looked that we were lo- looked and saw that we were losing about 20 conventions a year of conventions who would come, look at our convention center, the space is great, but we didn't have any hotels close to the convention center. So people were having to walk five, 10 blocks or take an Uber and just a deterrent. If you're a convention planner and you can get everybody right there on site or you gotta arrange shuttle buses from 10 different hotels, you know, we were just losing the conventions. Um, convention hotels don't operate on a purely market basis because to be a convention hotel, you're asking them to set aside a room block, to have a, a room rate that's below market, and it's, it's part of just atta- attracting conventions, and it makes sense to government to have this partnership because of the broader revenue options, but we just didn't have the ability to do that. And I knew, I, I'm, a, a, I'm a conservative Democrat in one of the most Republican states in the country. <laughs> so I looked at this and said, the numbers make sense. We should have a convention hotel, should do what it takes to get it here but there is no way that I'm going to get our state legislature to approve an incentive for a private hotel. We have to come at this a different way. And we looked at it and we saw we had this kind of grand entrance into the convention center that it was grandiose, I think, when we planned it, but it was really just a dead space that nobody used it. It was kind of the back end of the convention center. It was expensive to maintain. It was, you know, expensive to water and everything. And um, it really was just a source of crime. And we looked at it, though, and saw that we could actually fit a hotel on this site um, and right up abutted and connected to the convention center. And so we modeled that as part of an incentive to get a convention hotel, and we saw that it put us in the ballpark. So we put together a, a broader package without going into all of the details, but, um, and then did an RFP, and we were able to secure uh, an investor to come in with that kind of skinny incentive that we put together to build a convention hotel on the terms that allowed us to now um, attract conventions and, and so it's been a success story by simply using the land that was costing us money and not really bringing any benefit to our residents it's a great story yeah so the work that you're doing today is sort of predicated on some of those same concepts uh tell us a little bit about urban wealth funds you know how that works and and how that's a uh, some of the same success ingredients that you had in Salt Lake, but also taking it in some different directions. Yeah, so this is this is a concept that is used pretty routinely in Europe and Asia, and many places in Europe and Asia, where they see that you know government owns real estate and um, and other assets, but these assets can generate value. So government, at least in the U.S., doesn't really even have the concept of a balance sheet. When I'm a mayor and I'm balancing my budget, we look at our revenue projections and we look at our expense projections, and you marry those up and figure out what you're going to bring in and what you're going to spend it on. And that's the extent of government budgeting in the U.S. What government budgeting ignores is the balance sheet. What are our assets? Are assets improving in value, declining in value? What does it cost to maintain our assets? And can our assets be generating revenue? We don't really even go into that concept. There may be some rudimentary you know, data that logs our, our real estate, but it's not mark to market. It's oftentimes marked at the book value. What we acquired a parcel for 50 years ago is what our records say that it's worth today. 
and and there's got to be a better way. So when I'm looking at constrained budgets and, and things we want to do, I started asking my staff when I was mayor, what's our balance sheet? How's our balance sheet performing? Can we leverage our balance sheet to create new revenue? This is what's done in Europe and Asia. You know, you look at Singapore that was developing world and now is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. It's by smart management of their assets. Same in, in Copenhagen and Sweden and, um, you know, uh, Hamburg, Germany have done this. So we started asking ourselves, what are what concepts can we learn? Australia has done the asset recycling, right? What concepts can we learn abroad and can they be applied to the U.S. to generate new revenues to find solutions to our biggest challenges? So this is the Urban Wealth Fund context. But I think um, maybe it doesn't have a direct parallel to the U.S., but is certainly analogous. So you take what I did with the convention center, that we generate um, some revenue to invest in the priority of the county. But you take that to the portfolio level, not just an individual asset, but we did an inventory of all real estate assets that were government owned in Salt Lake County and, and estimated the market value. And we were shocked to find that the market value was in its current state, this is 2017, was roughly $13 billion. And then wow. we did another analysis to say, what would our real estate portfolio be worth if we did with our real estate what the private sector parcels within 500 feet of each of our parcels is doing? So we developed a data layer. The answer was it, would, it could be worth or should be worth $45 billion. We're talking you know, $30 billion of, of potential revenue sitting under the couch cushions that just needs to be unlocked. And it's astounding numbers. So, you know, we look at one parcel that's generating a few hundred thousand dollars. That's meaningful. It allows us to do things that we want to do. But you start taking that to scale. You're talking about a revenue stream that rivals property tax. You know, significant yeah. revenue stream that should be part of U.S. government finance is management of assets for a responsible return to the taxpayer. And, and that's where we need to get to. I think the place to start is focusing on individual assets and doing it incrementally. When I was mayor, I was exploring to how we do this at a portfolio level, mm -hmm. taking all of our assets and putting them under professional asset management. I, I felt that in our jurisdiction, that was too much to get a council and a state legislature to buy off on. So we were going down this path of just incrementally doing individual assets and growing that portfolio to the extent that you finally eventually get uh, a significant portion of our assets under active management. And, you know, if you take that $45 billion portfolio that we potentially have or hypothetically have, and a third of that is actively managed, and let's say, so you got $15 billion, let's say you generate a 3% return, it's $450 million of new revenue. It, wow. is, it is roughly equal to what we generate from property tax. We could fill our potholes, educate our kids, solve our homelessness, solve our affordable housing challenges on $450 million a year, and still cut property taxes by 50%. Yeah. So one follow-up question on that. I, it's fascinating to hear you talk about the these capital assets on the balance sheet. You know, it's only been since GASB 34, right, 1999 yeah. or thereabouts, that we even had government capital assets, state local government capital assets on the balance sheet at all. When they're there, they're there at historical cost, as you said. Seems like a huge part of what you're offering up here is the gap between the historical cost and market value. Is that a hard concept to bring people into? I mean, is it difficult to, when you're talking to elected officials to, as you were saying, unlock that value? A lot of that unlocking of that value is just putting different and sort of more realistic market-based numbers in front of people, but that's a foreign thing 
to a lot of elected officials. Is that as big a challenge as it sounds like? It, it is a big challenge. I've, you know, I've been at this for five years now. I mean, some of that I was in Congress, and I like to say I, I built a lot, of, got a lot of experience as a mayor working across the aisle, balancing budgets, finding solutions. Got to Congress and realized that they didn't do those type of things. <laughs> so, um, but now that I'm back in the private sector, I'm trying to figure this out. There are different iterations we've, we've taken to it. I think it is, a, it is a difficult challenge. It can sometimes be daunting when you've got $45 billion in assets um, of how do we, um, where do you start, right? It's also where I've come to the conclusion that we should start with individual assets because we could spend 10 years marking to market all of our real estate assets and do that and then what do you have, right? So I think it's important in government to, to look at the immediate wins within an election window for a mayor to show that we can solve some of your challenges you want to solve, we can solve them within the next four years, and, and you should do this, rather than spending 10 years in academics of it, let's, yeah. let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. But it is, a, it is a tricky issue, but I think, again, data is where it shows, I think data, data begs an action. So when we start and we say that you have our $45 billion number, it's, it's a rough estimate, uh, it, it could be 30 billion, it could be 90 billion. I don't know. It's more of an anecdotal number to say it's inexcusable to not be doing something. Start doing something. And then you translate that big number to action on, I think, five opportunities next year that, that we can take, we can move forward and generate a couple million dollars in revenue to solve a, a top priority, mm -hmm. right? That brings me to, the, so the, the panel presentation um, was Urban 3, I think, did a lot of visualizations, yeah. which really helps tell that story. We all like to look at pictures instead yeah. of numbers, right. me included. Um, one, of the, one of the questions I had, though, looking at, looking at all that and thinking about how downtowns, you know, how you're missing out on all this value that the private sector is getting right next door. What do you do in certain situations where you have challenges like um, a historical district, such as in Annapolis, Maryland, that was one of the cities yeah. in this pilot, um, or or um, traffic concerns, um, such as building on or using part of the parking lot at the Cleveland Brown Stadium, which is beautiful waterfront property. If you redevelop even part of that, I'm you 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 build anything and people worry about parking. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like I'm thinking about like game day, you know. So what do you do in those situations when you, so there's like the reality of something and then the the beautiful picture of what it could be? How do you make those two work? Let me maybe take a step back and talk about a project that Atlanta mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. So um, Atlanta talks about this parcel right across from City Hall that was just parking also. Mm -hmm. And um, Josh Humphreys, who's the leader of housing and innovation for the city of Atlanta, went to their real estate people and said, we own that parking lot, right? Yeah, we do. Well, what, what's it worth? And they looked back to their balance sheet and they said, well, it's worth $20 because 50 years ago, we bought it from the transit authority for $20. And, he's, and he says, I'm pretty sure it's worth more than $20 yeah. <laughs> today. But the other thing they said is like, it is indispensable. We, we have a purpose that it's used for. We can't do anything else. And for $20, of course, that's what you're going to, you know, the opportunity cost is, if the opportunity cost is $20, you can't envision doing anything differently. But when they got the actual data and said that that piece of land is actually worth $5 million, that's a different calculation. At that point, you can say, well, maybe we can figure out something different to do. So you go to some of these other examples, Annapolis um, with historic preservation. They, 
I think I have maybe a, a few different answers. The first would be most cities are going to have a pretty big portfolio, and I'm encouraging jurisdictions to um, put the easy stuff, put the hard stuff on the shelf, and come back to it mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. it, it might not be that it's clear today how to do it, or as you're trying to get people to buy into the concept generally, don't go with the hardest concept <laughs> that's going to bring in other political challenges. Makes sense. So maybe you are going at the vacant parking lot. You know, maybe that historic theater could become uh, university by day and historic theater by night. I don't know. I know that that would bring out a lot of opposition and people opposed to it. So I would say don't even go there now. Mm -hmm. um, but look at the easy stuff. There's There are inevitably going to be easy opportunities in a jurisdiction to just unlock the parcel. Um, you know, and then at, at that point, that's, that's I think, where we want people to do is just realize that they have opportunities under their nose and they should be taking action on it. The next step's more tricky. What, yeah. what kind of action are you going to take if, if that parcel next to the Cleveland Brown Stadium that's a beautiful waterfront parcel um, but currently used for parking, you have to model. What does a parking structure cost? Can, mm. can something pencil, something else pencil there if you're having to now build structured parking for the games? What does that use look like? And that's, you know, that's, the private sector is good at that, actually. They're going to model it. And if you bring in, if you have the right incentives in place and the right ground rules in place and you bring in a private par partner, they may figure out the complementary use that's able to share the parking that brings down the, the per, you know, dollar cost of, of the development. And what does it cost and what type of project you have to do to make it pencil. Those are complex. And that's going to have to be done on a parcel by parcel basis with people who have, years of professional expertise doing this where i hope government gets is to realize that they should be having these conversations not every parcel that you look at is gonna pencil at the end of the day you should be having these conversations and you should probably have the capacity on staff who can engage it shouldn't be your parks director who's running a summer rec program is also develop is also negotiating with the prominent local developer who's gonna talk circles around them yeah. and take advantage of them, right? Have some of this expertise in-house that can step up and be, um, to negotiate alongside the private sector to then bring private entities on board as, as partners and generating revenue from government assets. What types of private partners are participating in these projects? You put out an RFP, you put out an opportunity, you know, who's, who's responding? Yeah, well, I think a lot of the smaller parcels right now are looking at housing developers. So Atlanta is really leading the charge on this, and, and their focus is affordable housing. So they're saying we're going to put a – they're not looking necessarily to generate revenue, although they're, they're not foregoing revenue. They're saying we're going to put a parcel on the table, and, and we want respondents to generate – you know, build 20% of the unit should be affordable. And they'll negotiate what affordable means and, and different things. And, um, and that's who's responding right now on some of these small parcels right um what atlanta is saying is they're going to be first capital in by contributing the land which makes the deal less risky for a developer to then come in and say i didn't have to spend a penny on the land and so that's attractive they're going to have to agree to the concession of building affordable units what atlanta is saying is on the back end that deal might outperform what we're expecting and if it does we want the backside revenue so they're mm -hmm. going to be first money in last money out they might not get any dollars out they might just get the affordable units but I think that's an important way to look at it. It's not just far too often government comes to these conversations when somebody says, give me the land for a dollar a year for 100 years and I'll do something. And then the deal outperforms anyone's wildest expectations and the taxpayers left on the sidelines while other people participate. So I think there's a way to approach this where 
yes, we want transactions to happen. We may have objectives that aren't monetary. Governments, we're not in, only in the business. We're not a profit, right? We're in the right. business of being wise stewards of dollars, not necessarily generating the most dollars. But there's a way to do that, I think, where you um, still capture some of the value from projects that may ultimately be successful. And I think governments should be thinking along these lines. Government has the ability to create its own weather system. You may take a parcel that is difficult today. And, and what oftentimes, sadly, we see government do is sell that parcel for pennies on the dollar. And then they upzone it. And then they put in a transit stop. And then they put in, you know, they improve the public safety in the neighborhood. And they put in a trail and a park. And then somebody develops that and makes a killing. And the taxpayer was left paying for all the amenities and not seeing any of the benefit of that. So I think there's a, a more sophisticated approach that we should be taking to active, ongoing management of our assets. Yeah, you make excellent points about that. Yeah. <laughs> giving away the investment. What, um, I'm curious to know how this might be applied to what's go going. So downtowns are going through this major shift right now with telework. Yeah. And how might this be applied um, in that scenario to keep life in downtowns? Well, a lot of governments are looking at, you know, um, commercial buildings that are vacant. Mm -hmm. Vacancy rates are what, depending on the city, 30 to 40 percent right now. I was talking with government CFOs a month ago who were saying that they're projecting that, you know, some of that's still coming back incrementally. But they think there's just a new norm. 25, 30 percent of those office workers will never come back. Some of them will be, you know, in the office Tuesday through Thursday, but you're going to have vacancies and it's, it is going to be the new norm. And that's going to trickle down, it is trickling down to restaurants, to shops, to vibrancy of the downtown and, and downtowns are suffering. Uh, you know, there's an article in the New York Times declaring the death of, of urbanism in downtowns. I think that is premature. In fact, I think it's wrong, but um, I think there's actually an opportunity here too to bring more full-time residents into the downtown. So looking at maybe office to residential conversions is a key role I think government can play to, to make, what a great opportunity to make downtowns less commuter reliant and more 24 seven resident reliant by bringing people who want to live in urban areas, bringing them in. Some of these office to residential conversions are risky. You just don't know what it's going to take to convert until you get in. You know, if you're converting an office space to housing, you're going to need a lot more water for bathrooms and showers and kitchens. You're going to need a lot more electricity because people are using in different places. So there's a lot that you don't know until you get into the bones of the building, what it's going to take to actually do this conversion. That is risk, right? I think that's one of the things the government's good at is, is we talk about government being risk averse and we are in some ways risk averse, but other ways we're incredibly risk tolerant. I think that government is incredibly risk tolerant to the time value of money. We can sit on an asset for 30 years and never cross our mind that the opportunity cost and time value of that capital sitting latent for 30 years. Yeah. So if we're willing to let, if we currently have billions of dollars just sitting latent, maybe we can activate that capital to say, look, we don't want to give it away. But if it takes 10 years for this residential, office residential conversion to stabilize and start turning a profit, we can be some of that buffer that's tolerating the risk of that time frame of that conversion to then make these feasible for private sector to come in and do the conversion. I think I haven't quite figured it out right right now, but I think there's a space there for government to come in as a facilitator of office to residential conversions of buildings that are not going to be paying property taxes or um, you know might become blighted and, 
and costing us social services if there's uh, increase in crime and homelessness and other challenges in the area due to these vacancies. I think we should be part of the solution. I think we bring some interesting real estate assets, but also some policy assets to the table that can help to move those forward. Think of the policy side of this. It sounds like an important part of your model is identifying what that recaptured public value looks like from the outset, right? I mean, there's so many examples of privatizations and concessions that go, go bad because, as you were saying, a concessionaire can come in and capture all of that, and it's hard for the public to know what they have to show for it as a result of giving up this or, or uh, shifting the use of a, of a public asset. How important is that? At least it seems like that's an important part of your process, defining those goals, defining what, what public value looks like at the outset. You mentioned housing and afford, affordability and housing. Are there other types of policy goals that are, are being considered as uh, applications of this model elsewhere? Yeah, I, th I think absolutely. I think you need to look at what the jurisdiction's top priorities are. To get public buy-in as a mayor who's you know, had my challenges with town hall meetings and zoning, and I know how hard it is. And I think it's important to show the public the immediate return they're going to get for something that's complex and a little bit difficult. I will. I think I tell people that I think the gold standard is to treat our real estate assets like we treat our pension assets. This is not this concept of professional management of public assets is not new. It's in the U.S. It's new to real estate. But think about our pension assets. When I'm a mayor, we take a little bit out of our employees' paychecks every month. We put it in a pension fund so that when they retire, they're going to have some retirement benefit. We don't take that money and put it in a safe and lock it up till they retire, and then we're going to pull the dollars out of the safe and give it to them. What do we do with it? We hand it to somebody who is professionally qualified to make investment decisions. They're going to invest it in real estate. They're going to invest it in startups and stocks and bonds, and, and they invest it, and they're held accountable to generating a return on investment. We don't do that with our real estate. I'd love to see 20 years from now governments having a professional asset management treating their, their real estate assets like they treat their pension funds. Not that I not that pension funds should manage real estate funds, but just think about these and, and assess them on their return. I think that's such a big concept to bite off that I would not recommend. I, I tried. I looked at it when I was mayor. I wouldn't rec I think it's too big to go to the public and say, this uh, you know, this parking lot that you parked in forever is going to be a high density development and expect that people are going to love it. Right. Yeah. Because it's part of our 30-year plan. So I think just the nature of politics is you've got to have an immediate return. So it's to say this corner of this convention center is going to bring hotels, it's going to sit, and all the restaurants, we had all the restaurants advocating for that. They were begging us to do it because they knew that that was going to be their livelihood and, and bring them more vitality. So it's, you know, um, I think of some assets near my house. We have some abandoned tennis courts that's a homeless um, camp yeah. right now couple blocks from my house. And I, I know if we went in and said, we're going to put in a high density development right here, the neighbors would just, they don't like what, what it is currently. They don't want a high density development right there. Mm -hmm. But can we think of something that is a hybrid approach that gives an immediate benefit to the immediate neighbors? So maybe mm -hmm. it funds new soccer fields or, um, you know, they want a, a rec center. Maybe it can be part of the, it's not going to build a rec center, but it can be part of the, ask, the revenue picture that gets a rec center in the area that I think I would try to link benefits, policy benefits. It could be affordable housing, it could be homelessness solutions, it could be open space, it could be hotels, you know, convention centers. 
but link it link a benefit to the asset that's pretty close in time and close in proximity that's going to give people a reason to care. I think we covered everything. Okay. <laughs> yeah, anything we didn't anything we didn't ask. Do you want well, to I would just um, let me can just say so we're working with um, government finance offices association to do the putting assets to work. We're just concluding the first round. We've worked with six jurisdictions. And it's been a, a resounding success. And the jurisdictions are now off working to activate their assets and generate opportunities. We, um, we'd like to see more jurisdictions doing this. I'm on a mission to make, gov make this the norm in governments across the US, that they know what their balance sheet is, they are, know how their balance sheet performed in the last year, and they're deriving benefits to the people they serve from the strength of their balance sheet. So we're looking at another round of putting assets to work. We're looking for new jurisdictions who are interested in this. Okay. They can find out more at gfoa.org slash PAW or just you know putting assets to work. Mm -hmm. And we'd love to hear from people who are excited to learn the strength of the balance sheet and how to put it to work. Yeah, well, we really need to follow those jurisdictions as they implement yeah. this. You should be careful. You may have a lot of our listeners <laughs> taking you up on that. I can't wait. <laughs> And we'll have to have you back sometime to talk about pensions uh, as a Chicagoan and a native of yeah. Illinois. That's a much longer discussion. Yeah, sure. Ben McAdams, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here at GFOA and for being on the Public Money Pod. Thank you, Dustin and Liz. Great to be with you both. Great to have you. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association.